Welcome to the Kernel DeFi Podcast. My name is Sean DeManta, and I'm here to explore the past, present, and future of the DeFi industry with you. In today's episode, I speak with Rex Highgate, founder and CEO of DeFi Safety and former Kernel KB2 fellow. DeFi Safety is the leading source for technical data on DeFi protocols and contracts and has reviewed over 250 plus protocols in 15 chains across 25,000 smart contracts. Rex applied the risk and quality best practices from his background in the aerospace industry. And we talk about how DeFi safety and builders can help create a safer DeFi experience for all. Hacks, scams, and other issues are persistent threats in the DeFi industry. And you do not want to miss hearing Rex's thoughts on the topics of safety and security. Hey, Rex, thanks for coming on the podcast. We're really excited to have you on. We know that you're a former Kernel Fellow and really excited to see where your journeys led you after the, the, the fellowship block that you were part of. I love if you could start off for those that don't under, don't know your background, if you could share a bit more about your background, um, how you got here, and a bit more about DeFi Safety. Not a problem. So hi, I'm Rex. I'm from DeFi Safety. Um, I started on Ethereum. I was lurking in Reddit when the DAO happened. So I started pretty early. Um, and I was in discussion with uh, um, some consensus people, uh, Kurt from consensus, and he told me to go to a hackathon because I was sort of saying, you know, what else could I do? And uh, so I went to the first at Denver, at Denver 2018. And I was, I ended up hanging out with the auditors because they were slightly older and, um, uh, and my software skills were nowhere near the level to be able to work with the auditors doing that. Um, but I was, my background is in aerospace avionics. So airplane software and airplane software has a very, um, a strict standard in the way that they're doing it and the way that they update it. And it makes for very safe software. Um, so, uh, basically I came out of F Denver with the software quality sort of swim lane. They're basically, I got a lot of support from the auditors saying, yes, please, nobody is doing this. It's going to be super important. Uh, there anything you can do to help. So that's how I got into the software quality point. And I did a little bit, um, with, the uh, secure F, um, but we got some F foundation money, but nothing much really happened until COVID happened. So COVID happened, but all of a sudden, uh, I had a ton of spare time, shall we say. And I was looking at what to do with their time. And, um, Jay from Quantstamp, uh, told me you've got to get into DeFi. It's going to be huge. And this is May, 2020. April, May, 2020. So right, be, right at the beginning of DeFi summer. And, uh, there, this allowed me to, um, to get started. Uh, so I started DeFi safety full-time then, and, uh, I did kernel block two. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was probably early 2021. Um, and, uh, uh and that helped, uh, catapult the company into what it is today. I'd love to go back into your background in 
avionics and aerospace software and better understand some of the principles from that industry that are translatable to DeFi. I know that the aerospace industry has gone through a long history of safety regulation and the like to the point where it is today, where it's one of the safest industries for transportation. Um, but w what principles specifically from aerospace do you think are translatable to DeFi? And um, what, at what stage is DeFi, if you were to take the analogy <laughs> of the aerospace industry um, compared to, to the aerospace, uh, to, to where they are now? So I would put us maybe in the 20s. So in the 20s, um, people were starting to fly quite a bit. And you could actually do things like flights, but boy, oh boy, it wasn't safe. Um, but people were starting to get together and realizing that competition is good, but you don't compete in safety, you cooperate in safety. Um, and also, uh, sort of in that culture, um, it's an iterative thing. It's not a light switch. It's you add little things over and over again until you're able, until you've got a, a mountain of software. This is how we do things. It takes time. And, uh, so I think things like this are extremely applicable to, um, crypto and especially DeFi where you're taking care of insane amounts of other people's money. And so with DeFi safety, we're trying to in a public permissionless environment. We can't force anybody to do anything. So in that type of environment to try and bring in a culture of quality, because it makes sense, because it helps money come in, because it helps money going out in bad ways, like a security incident. Um, and, uh, because it makes me, you know, it, it, it makes everybody feel safe. So we're still pretty darn early. But the culture of that, that iterative and cooperative idea on security is, uh, I think something that aerospace learned the hard way and applied, and they're now applying it rigorously. And it's immensely, um, uh, effective, as you said, like, uh, airplanes are incredibly safe. That's interesting that you mentioned the, the, the spirit of cooperation. And I feel like in the DeFi world right now, it's very much a, a world of competition, right? So who, who has the largest TBL? Um, even if you look at it on a, uh, on the basis of basically, um, MEV or maximal extractable value, miners or, or hackers who are, who are looking for opportunities. And it's very much a player versus player PVP mm -hmm. type environment. And what does it take to get into that cooperative state? I know that you're trying to do it with DeFi safety, but what, what else is required for what? the whole industry to get there? I mean, it is hyper competitive and it is an immensely dangerous area. It, you know, the money is all out there. But it's also, um, uh, an, an massive, massive difference between traditional business, especially aerospace and our business is it's 90 plus percent is all public. We work on a public area and security is public when there's a security incident. First of all, the actual incidents are far more public. There's an impression 
that DeFi is massively more um, dangerous than TradFi. That may not be, that may be true, but remember, there's hundreds of things that happen in TradFi which are proprietary. So the, it's not public information. This is okay. There was a hat. These guys took some money. We will give, uh, refund the investors that they won't know. We'll fix our system. We won't tell anybody that it happened. We won't tell anybody what the attack was, how we fixed it, what you should look out for. So in the tradfide business, the level of cooperation at public disclosure is less. I'm sure it's not zero, but it's much less because everything's proprietary. We don't live in that environment. Everything's public. So every single piece of laundry is aired to the public, be it horribly soiled or just a little bit, everything's there. And it gives a, um, uh, a bad impression. Also, um, every time the, the publicizing a security incident is a great way to get clicks. So for journalists where clicks are the, the barometer of success, they are going to inflate the number, um, uh, of the, the security incident as much as they possibly can, because the bigger the number, the bigger the clicks and they don't say how much of that money was given back, how much actually was money taken from investors that wasn't repaid. Um, and, uh, so once again, that's an area where the actual impression is more negative than the reality. And I would tend to say on security, there is a very, because we're public and because the laundry is always out there for everybody to see, there's an immense level of cooperation which means that we're advancing in our security area in a much more, um, uh, our system is welcoming of attackers in TradFi, you have to get yourself past the boat and past the wall before you're inside. And then you could start stealing. So we don't have a moat. We don't have a wall. So, uh, it's all, it's like, uh, if you were TradFi, it was like, okay, give everybody put public out all of your, um, uh, admin passwords and all of your source code, at, which is proprietary, put everything out in the public and see how safe you are now. Um, so that's what we do. Everything is public. It's all out there all the time. Uh, so you, um, I think. We are very cooperative in our security areas in this industry, partially out of necessity and partially out of it. So I think there is already a good culture of cooperation on security incidents. Given some of the recent blowups in what would be called the CDFI, basically the TradFi financial world of the Web3 industry. So if you think about Celsius, 3AC, um, BlockFi, et cetera, blowing up. They, they, they had probably a lot less transparency around their methods and accounting and the like. And I'm, I'm curious if some of the work that you do also extends to some of these large players, which have, which had amassed significant amounts of capital and AUM, um, if not. I, I suppose my understanding is that you, you focus largely on open 
protocols. Um, how can consumers think about these two different opportunities? One, the the CD5, which is almost like a, it's an easy on-ramp for them. Um, BlockFi had a very easy narrative, 10% APR, just connect to your bank account and deposit it in GUSD or one of these stable coins and we'll, we'll give you um, some, some level of yield earnings. And, and Celsius had a very similar story. Uh, how do consumers balance this kind of centralized entity that is able to provide this very simple story with DeFi, which oftentimes can be a little bit more complex for the average consumer to parse through. And I'm, I'd love to understand how consumers might be able to use DeFi safety to be able to parse through that journey as well, as so, they determine where to park their money. Um, we don't really look at CeFi much at all. So I would not say I have much to add on that. Just looking from the same uh, newspaper reports that everybody else sees, uh, I would say it was a lack of transparency, a lack of regulation, and people got hosed. Um, I think the biggest problem that DeFi has is our on-ramp is still, it's, it's not easy to use. It just isn't. And that's... That's not something that we're trying to solve, but it's one of the things that has to be solved. Um, I think identity, because that will be a factor, um, uh, and, um, ease of use, absolutely massive. And we have to, we have to fix that before we can compete with the TradFi. Um, because I think that was their biggest discriminator. They were basically saying, um, it was an easy array much easier and use it on your phone. The man machine interface was, was gorgeous and we couldn't DeFi, we being DeFi, um, couldn't compete with that. Um, I mean, if you really look apart from Terra, there aren't as many failures of the big protocol. Certainly none of the big protocols are even close to failure. If you look Aave, um, Uniswap, um, uh, compound maker, they, even though it was a massive drop in price, absolutely stunningly, unimaginably huge, they coasted through. Obviously the money has flowed out of DeFi. The trades are being done so much. The TVL, the return isn't as high, but the transparency of DeFi, the protocols worked. Not many protocols went under maybe because they could borrow so much. But, uh, or, but I mean, if you're a DeFi protocol and, uh, your DAO, uh, keeps on coming in, we would like to borrow, uh, and have 300% over leverage with our treasury. The chances of that vote passing is not very high. So I think people manage their treasuries relatively conservatively, and therefore they're not bankrupt. They're. So the, the protocols have sort of survived. A lot of coins are sort of going to zero and a lot of protocols will be abandoned. And we lost say 30% of the protocols because we would, we would update our process and we'd say, okay, let's re-review everybody. And we start going through the list and easily 30% is like, oh, they're dead. You know, like the, the, they make a new token, make a new protocol, money pours in, token goes up, token goes down, everybody leaves. 
And that happens to a lot of protocols. And let's face it, what they're working on is just the token goes up and we sold on the token goes up and everything else is kind of, that, that's not good, but that's what's happening. But I think now in the second phase, we will get more long-term um, uh, protocols that will last and that really add value, more value than token go up. Um, they're actually, you know, they're like say Uniswap, uh, you know, they add value. Um, uh, you know, you, every time there's a trade, you make a buck in police loss of some, but, uh, yeah. So I think, um, I, I, I think DeFi did better than, than CeFi in this particular crash. Uh, but it will be very difficult for people to see that the general public. I think the general public focuses a lot on token price, right? And that's largely a, uh, a narrative perpetuated by media and frankly, uh, also retail investors losing money, right? Through Ponzonomics where they buy when there's a lot of attention and the price is going high and then lose money on the crash. In terms of the types of dangers out there for consumers, I can think of many. So one are hacks, smart contract hacks, where there's actually a hacker is able to gain access to the treasury or the customer's funds within a DeFi protocol. I think there's also scams, so social engineering, basically people uh, being able to get, get retail customers to give up their seed phrases or other types of keys to, to gain access to their assets. I also think about Ponzanomics, so what we ju were just talking about in terms of getting consumers to buy in when the hype is at the ultimate maximum and then um, ultimately, the early participants benefit much more than the later participants. Uh, what are the types of dangers that you focus on on DeFi safety amongst those when you're assessing protocols and uh, specifically contracts and chains? And then uh, two, would, would love to also take a step back and if you could just describe the, the process that DeFi, DeFi safety goes through to assess these various protocols. So. As I said earlier, we started from a quality perspective. So what we look at is if you're writing good software, you leave things, you leave evidence of your software process behind in documentation, in tests, in architecture documents, in, um, the, the, the way you document your software. So we look for those traces. We don't actually like, a, a an auditor will look just at the code pretty much. We look at all the things around the code. And a lot of what we're looking at is sort of two things, effort and transparency. So if you develop good software, software that you expect will last a long time, that will manage other people's money safely, then you will end up using, and this has nothing to do with avionics. It's just good software process. And you'll follow that well. And as I said, you leave traces of that behind very clearly in your software documentation, in your test suite, and, um, in the way you document, uh, updates and such. The other thing is transparency. Um, if you have updatable software, do you clearly say what you can update, how quickly you can update and what, how this could affect investors money. So that at least when an investor comes in, he has somewhere where he can read in common language this is, this is what's up. And then we look at oracles also, uh, you know, having documented the impact that oracles will have on your protocol 
And have you, are you able to say that we've looked at front running and we've looked at flash? So these are the things that we're looking for. And we have a 28 question process. We evolve our process once every six months or so. Um, and we're, uh, we're at eight, 0.8 now. And, um, so we, uh, look at that. We go through these 28 questions and we look on the public data. We don't look at proprietary data. If you have a private, um, GitHub, then, um, uh, you know, you get no points for the information that's, that's, uh, private. Uh, you, even if you show it to us, you still don't get points for it. We score on public data because in order for strangers to trust D5, they need, uh, they need their public information. I think the strongest D5 protocols will be those that are public, uh, and, uh, that will be their strength. That will be their, um, advantage over traditional finance, which the occlusion in traditional finance, the weaknesses of it is, you know, it, it already has filled many books. So that's a road well-traveled. And I think good transparent DeFi protocols will be better because there's nothing to hide. You can see, you know, the, the Komodo is open. You can see everything and you know what you're getting before you can, before you go out. So you have no excuse if you don't know. Um, so I think this is what, uh, good DeFi protocols will show later, but, uh, yeah, we, we go through these 28 questions. We go through it publicly and then we develop the report and then we reach out to the, to the devs privately and say, Hey, we just reviewed your protocol and this is what we've got. Did we miss anything? Is there anything you want to change quickly, uh, before we publish? So the, the protocol knows, uh, and has a chance to correct if they want. Got it. I, I, one thing I heard, um, from a few other prominent DeFi protocols is that the presence of bug bounties is uh, quite a strong indicator of whether or not there is good security practices and, uh, basically safety checks around that protocol. I, I wonder, does that factor into the DeFi safety scoring system? And yes. yep. based on that also, I'm, I'm curious, how, how do you foster more of this environment of white hat, white hat hackers versus, um, some of the malicious hackers? Like how does the industry gain more white hat hackers? Is it increasing bug bounty sizes? Is it, um, making this more of a professional uh, path within DeFi? So bug bounties are one of the questions, and, uh, I definitely agree that having a sizable bug bounty, uh, will bring people in such that they will take the bounty rather than trying to, uh, do the hack. And I think the, the processes that the more mature bug bounty operators are doing really do help. And I think they do quite a bit, uh, behind the scenes, um, that assist. And, uh, so I think that's part of it and it's, it, I didn't mention it, but it is one of the 28 questions and it definitely adds, it's not everything. Um, you know, if you have very sloppy software and a big bug bounty, then, uh, you know, you're, you're increasing, you're increasing your chance for having weaknesses and, uh, you know, the bug bounty won't solve everything. And, uh, a lot, a lot of the time insurance and 
uh, bug bounties are very smart contract focused. And I would say the past six months have shown that uh, a lot of the weaknesses these days, domain name stealing um, uh, and website uh, uh, hacks with Cloudflare and such, uh, these are now becoming bigger things. And, you know, like Nexus will sit back and say, it's not a smart contract thing. I'm sorry, we can't cover that. That's not so. Um, uh, part of it is uh, DeFi has to, you know, expand their range of safety to be, uh, you know, the entire domain. And I think people are doing that and we're going to try and we have new processes we're, we're um, developing that'll help in that process. But, uh, so the risks are now more than just smart contract. On, on that, um, on that topic, I, I wanted to go back into smart contracts and the languages that are used to develop smart contracts. So predominantly solidity, a little bit of rust thrown in as well. I, I was speaking with Sam Blackshear of Miston Labs and he was talking about move, which is uh, theoretically supposed to be much more, uh, at least resistant to a lot of these security mm -hmm, issues mm -hmm. that Solidity has. I'm curious if you have any perspectives on a general shift away from Solidity. Um, is Solidity good enough as of a smart contract language for people to can you continue to build on? Is it inherently flawed? Uh, are, are we going to see more and more of a shift of developers into languages like Move and Rust and maybe even uh, JavaScript to help mitigate some of these potential security bugs and gaps across the industry. I, I'd love to hear your perspective from what you're seeing across different protocols and chains and the like. And so um, I know things are rapidly shifting in this multi-chain world. Yeah. I would say, don't forget Viper. I mean, if you sit back and you look at Curve and Convex, a massive amount of money is moving there and it's primarily Viper. So Viper is a language out there also. Um, I remember, uh, you know, over the, I've been in, uh, um, Ethereum since 2018. So that's like four years. Um, there's always been a dialogue and that we're going to get past solidity, but the tool base around solidity, the number of people who understand the tiny nuances of the language are, um, and the are so strong that it's difficult with a new language. You have to, you have to really hit the ground running and you've got to hit all of the things. And then you've got to get the TBL to be able to prove that your thing is actually safer. So the, I would say it's surprising the base that solidity has. And even though I've heard many auditors say that it's, you know, it's a tremendous language to, you know, fire the shotgun on your own foot. Um, it's just, it's state power is much higher than what I thought. Um, uh, so we'll see about the other languages. There's a lot of things that go through, but the, the, I mean, decompilers and visualizers and, um, you know, MEV understanding it's all there in solidity, all of this information, it's all work, it's all put together. So if you bring in another language, you've got to, you've got to hit with all of more at safe another language on another blockchain, um, which is coming up. You have a lot of 
I's to dot and T's to cross, and I've done this and I've done this. It's the, the, the quantity of work is quite high, or else you'll start developing an, oh, I can't do this. I could, I could check that. Couldn't check. I'm not really sure. And suddenly you just stop. And I think that's happened with, not that I'm, remember, I'm not the software expert. So on this, I'm weaker, but that's sort of on the outside. That's the impression that I see. So I think you'll see solidity sticking around. Look at how many, um, uh, uh, alt chains came out with their own language. And then after a while they went, we're EVM compatible. And then they got the TVO. It's just, it's, it's amazing how strong the whole solidity base still is. And I wouldn't say I see that changing. Got it. So a lot of path dependence here. Solidity has built a pretty good base. There's almost like a network effect. Uh, by which developers and developer tooling has uh, enabled that to stick around. That that makes a lot of sense and in understanding those nuances as well, given how many years it's been around in user smart contract, uh, smart contracts within Ethereum and EVM compatible chains. I I wanted to take a step back and go back to some of your background and story coming into DeFi safety and where it is today and better understand your journey within Kernel, since a lot of our audience is from Kernel or mm -hmm. hopeful to be a Kernel fellow or in and around the the, the fellowship and the community. I, I wanted to understand your experience in Block 2, how that might have shaped how you thought about DeFi safety uh, compared to how you were thinking about it prior, especially when you were talking about December in 2018 and the like, and yep. up to when you joined Kernel in 2021 and how that changed how you approach everything from fundraising to think about DeFi safety as a, as an organization and how you scale that and more. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, so I started, as I said, May, 2020, and you're just, you know, when you're starting, I was just completely on my own. I set up a Gitcoin grant and it didn't get a lot of traction and, uh, I ended up like one of the things, as I said, our processes would reach out to the devs and then say, you know, here's the report. Uh, did we miss anything? Especially in the early parts where everything was immensely immature. Um, so I think about the seventh protocol that I did was urine. So this is urine V1. So it was Andre, you know, the team was basically Andre period. And so I sent it out and he went over it and he got a 60 something and he says, yeah, yeah, it's about right. Yeah. My documentation is crap. And he was very, very clear about where he was. He, he understood where he was at and he was fine with it, but he helped. He sort of sat back and said, I like what you're doing and, uh, gave us a chunk of money and that started. And then, um, with the Gitcoin grants, I can't quite remember how it worked out, but I heard about Kernel and I applied. And at this point, I was like, I would like, cause, uh, uh, at that point it was myself, my son sort of part-time because we're, this is the summer 2020. So the height of, um, COVID we're, we're in Montreal, Canada, but which, so Quebec was pretty strict. So there was a, there was a curfew. You couldn't go out. Everybody was bored to tears and stuck in their own. So that was a great environment for getting him to help because he had very few distractions at the time, but I wanted us to sort of grow, to be, you know, more, to actually hire people, actually get going. And that was, you know, when you start kernel, they sort of say, what is your adventure? And, um, 
so I said, I want to raise funds do a, um, to be able to make DeFi safety as something. And they guided me all the way through the process. I mean, uh, uh, seed funding was part of within this goal. So they helped me to, um, uh, first of all, decide, do I do a token or do I do a, um, a seed round? Uh, so help me through that decision and then help me through the, um, the whole process of, uh, you know, what do you say in the pitch? Who are you saying it to? And then at the end of kernel block two, because there was a KB two, um, alumni, uh, when you were doing the presentations, you were basically pitching to a bunch of VCs who were out there more so for critique and such, but it was a really effective process. I got, um, uh, uh, massive support for that. And, uh, and then from that, we were able to, to succeed in doing the raise. We raised a million bucks. We were able to hire real people, get ourselves an office and, uh, and grow to where we are today. And, and, uh, in, in May, we started our revenue product and, uh, and we're, we're rolling on with that and actually working on our next seed, our next, uh, um, raise, uh, now it'll be, it's. We're reasonably optimistic, but it's a much more challenging environment today. Well, it seems like Kernel really helped sharpen your focus and, and, and think about growth beyond where you were before, which, which is awesome to hear. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you do, you, do you consider DeFi safety almost like public goods infrastructure in the sense that this is ultimately useful to the broader Public, I realize it's a for-profit entity. Yes, and, and th 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 yeah, the, the reason I ask that is because Gitcoin Kernel mm -hmm. largely is uh, focused on public goods infrastructure. But I, I wanted to ask that and also understand how, um, if, if you do think it is kind of on the side of public goods infrastructure, how folks building in that in that realm can start to think about approaching the problems and building solutions in this space. So. It's an interesting question. So one of the things, you know, when you imagine where you want DeFi safety to be, you want a staff of experts, they're full-time on looking at the various aspects of DeFi safety and documenting this in publications and stuff. It's overhead, it's people, people times time, easily a million a year of, uh, of uh, burn rate. So you sit back and you think even today, or say, roll it back to last summer, um, uh, or let's say the beginning of the year before the crash, um, there basically aren't many things that are funding a million a year through Gitcoin regs. I don't think there's anything that's got that kind of cash flow. So the whole, in order to run an organization like this, it has to be for profit. At this point, even, it, I mean, this is a financial industry. There's a lot of money around here. Raising wasn't immensely hard, which I love, but trying to cover that kind of cost and want to grow after that. You don't want to be limited by that. You want to grow. You want to be able to offer all kinds of services. It has to be for, for profit. And uh, then we, like, after we did the raise, part of our scope was to go back and say, and remember, this is still um, bull market. Um, do we do a token? And we were sort of like, we would offer services to DeFi users. 
we will, you know, we do you, we do the research for you and we're an independent group or, you know, and, and we wanted to give the information all kinds of formats and all kinds of depths, you know, from the very top level down to the nitty gritty, whatever you want. How do you sell that service using a token? There are models that do it, but it's still, it's, it's not very mature. And for me, the whole, like, if you're a DeFi protocol, you have to do a token. You cannot open a business with an address and start selling stuff. It just doesn't work because what you're doing is not legal sort of anywhere. So you have to do a token. You have to do a DAO because if you don't, you won't survive. I don't have that problem. What I'm doing is perfectly legal. I look at stuff on the internet and I grade it and that I creating, you know, creating information, which I then sell to people. That's a perfectly legal business. So I don't need to go to the whole token side and it's still, it's still awfully young and still awkward. I think I have massive hope for DAOs, but right now I prefer to run a business. And so that, for that reason, I've stuck with, um, being a, a web two business, looking at the web three industry. That, that makes a lot of sense, especially as you, as you think about bringing the, the principles of reliability and transparency and uh, stability in some sense to the, to the industry. I also see that the tides of regulation may be coming to the industry mm -hmm. fairly soon. Um, it seems like all signs point towards that with comments from Janet Yellen, Gary Gensler, many from the CFTC and the like. And I'm interested in hearing your perspective. What role does DeFi safety play in a world where there's increased regulation? Um, if you think that there will be a world of increased regulation in the next few years, and then also um, how you might partner with regulatory bodies if, if they do end up adding much more levels of requirements and regulation to the DeFi industry. So if you look at the current wave DeFi regulation, most of it is on centralized exchanges and centralized stable coins, which I think a, they, uh, regulation will help everybody. Um, and they can be regulated. Because, you know, regulators like to do stuff that they understand. So these are places with addresses. They're financial entities, public, ordinary financial entities that touch on Web3, so they can regulate them. And I think they're sitting there saying, we would like to have KYC. So they're going to try and KYC the addresses from the centralized exchanges. Let's get that done. So that'll all happen, and I'm not against it. And it will happen because they know how to do it and because they, it's, it's a road well-traveled, they know how to use the levers and such. DeFi is still different. Apart from aspects of MICA, where they're saying, we want travel rule documents on any exchanges, even through unlicensed wallets. Let's see how that works out. Because while people could do it, will people actually do it? Will they bother? You know, uh, the only way I could see them enforcing that is running after all the people that do the transaction, the, 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 um, the cost to prosecute, I think will be high. Um, 
So I'm not sure how well that'll work out, but that'll be interesting to see. That appears to be going to be a regulation, and that one will sort of do it. But nobody's really sat back and regulated DeFi because it's going to be hard, because it's public, it's permissionless. The aspects of it, and you cannot change that. The only way to have regulated DeFi, first you make the regulations. Andre actually, in one of his talks, said almost the same thing. First you make the regulations, then you make a blockchain that follows those regulations. Then you have protocols go in there that everything there follows the regulations. Of course, this would, and then you actually have, have to have money go there. So that, that, the result of that has to financially compete with the unregulated thing and with, so, so far I haven't seen a regulated, uh, blockchain set up yet, but it could, there's nothing stopping people from doing that. That's a hundred percent. But for the near term, what I see is we in DeFi won't be effectively regulated. Therefore, we have to self-guideline, shall we say. We have to show uh, uh, beacons on the stuff that's good. Um, and this is what DeFi safety is trying to do. It's a public permissionless environment. You cannot stop people from investing in anything. You cannot stop people from making dumb decisions. You just can't. Anybody who starts talking about regulation to protect the, the retail person, if they don't say how they're going to do that, then they, they're, they're just talking. So in that, you just have to show this is safe. This is good. This, and, and it's shining the light on the good parts and Improving the good parts is our road. You cannot stop the bad parts from being out there. But what you can do is say, guys, if you don't see these things, then don't go into it. And enough people get burned and, you know, but that's just the nature of DeFi. You cannot stop people from doing it. And you have to accept that lack of control before you start thinking about regulating DeFi. Unless you sit back and say, I'm making my own blockchain, it'll be fully regulated. And that's great. You can do that. But if you're not saying that, if you're talking about blockchain on Ethereum-like smart chains, which are public and permissionless, then you're going to, you have to do the shine a light on what works. And that is the road that DeFi safety is following. And we're talking with some regulatory organizations, anybody who wants, we'll, we'll talk with the and give them, you know, our, our, um, point. But the idea for me, I see self guidelines in DeFi. Be, I, I don't really have a good word for it, which is it's interesting in itself because you can't regulate DeFi. So don't use the word regulate. You can't effectively regulate DeFi because you have no way to stop people from doing things or to stop people from investing in bad things. So if you don't have that, you can't regulate it. So then it comes down to guidelines and shining the light on saying what you want. And I've got to get my diction better on this part. I'm weak there. What I hear you saying is like, there, there's effect that there needs to be some, some level of self-regulation. Yes. Um, part of that is perhaps what DeFi self guidelining can help regulation drive. is the wrong word. <laughs> self, uh, self transparency yes. or, or the like, and I, I, as part of that, um, what, what do you think about the nature of founders of these protocols and core teams of these protocols being 
anonymous versus pseudonymous versus fully identified in developing trust with consumers. And do you think there will be a trend to some of these core founding teams and founders of these protocols being more on the identified scale of things to drive that trust uh, and, and reduce the notion of rug pulls and pontonomics and the like? Or, or is it not necessarily moving in that direction? And I'm curious, how does DeFi safety look at that from a uh, fr from a scoring perspective? So uh, there's one question on, is the team anon or not? It's not a huge question. So you can get a 90 plus and be an anon team. Uh, and this is deliberate because, I mean, as I said, DeFi isn't really legal anywhere. So there's a very strong, sensible incentive for people to obstruct their identity while doing business in it. As I said, we are a legal business, so I don't have that fear, but I completely understand other people that do. You have five guys that are controlling a, uh, a multi-sig with $5 billion in it. Yeah, I'd want to be in on. Um, so I can understand that. And once again, this will go away if and when it becomes legal. But that's a road, you know, it, it's going to be CFI and, and centralizing. It, it'll be a while before they get down to DeFi, I think. So right now we have to deal with it. So I, for us, Anon is part of the landscape and we're not fighting it. And we're not, um, you can be anon and tremendously, um, good for the industry. Look at Samsung, you know, uh, Bantech, these guys are absolute pillars of the industry. The, the, you know, the, the whitest of white hats and they're not, and they have, uh, you know, so yeah, I think Anon will stay rug pulls is not something that DeFi safety does. You've got Roy Dark and the others. I would love and fully support if more effort was paid to rug pulls, more money from the DeFi ecosystem as a whole to um, advertise what is good and what is not. We can test what is good and what is not. And you can detect a rug pull on the, in the smart contract code. We know how to do that. But we just, the, the resources aren't spent to say what is good and what is not. And uh, this is something that DeFi could afford to do and could help get rid of that part of the Wild West. And I would love it if we did do that. It's not something that we're chasing, um, uh, but we would support if we did, because I think this is something that can be fixed. And I think, I mean, in a lot of rug pulls, you have organized crime doing a cookie cutter method that isn't immensely smart. Um, and they're, they're taking money from, from people and we could publicly sit back and say, if it doesn't have a green check mark or whatever, don't invest in it and uh, blast that in TikTok and all of the, the channels so that everybody who sees that knows what to look for. And you can, you can do an ICO that is a hundred percent, not a rug pull. You can do that in the smart code contract code. It may not be a good ICO that's it. You know, the business might be uh, crap, but at least they can't just take your money and walk away. So I, I think the rug pull problem can be solved. I wish, I wish it would, I would support it, but it's not something that we're in a position to work on right now. You need big dollar advertising money to do that. But as I said, the, the money is in the treasuries of DeFi. And I think that would help DeFi a lot if we shut that down ourselves.
it, it sounds to me almost like a trade group getting together to to promote. Yes, this, it um, would be if, if they combine the the treasuries yep. together. Yep. In a way, yeah. If, if there could be that level of coordination, I as we start to wrap up, I I wonder uh, if you could share a bit more about what are some of your favorite DeFi safety and transparency tools outside of DeFi safety for consumers. Um, what can builders uh, what can builders build in this space that maybe DeFi safety is not focused on or maybe is not on your roadmap? And finally, I wanted to see if you have any asks for our audience, which is primarily builders as well. So I realize that's a multi-part question, but wanted to end off on that. So, you know, I don't have a good answer on the first one. I'm not sure. Nothing comes to mind. My apologies. On the second one for builders, transparency is very good. Um, aim for something that clearly adds value more than token go up. Um, uh, I was just talking to a guy who was, um, you would be able to buy, uh, so many wheat per year, and this would be a hedge against inflation. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of areas and I would, anything that can, we're heading into a tough time economically, globally, I think it's going to get worse. Um, so think about countries, like there are countries, alas, today that are having extremely tough times currency wise, and the number is going to increase. DeFi could help these people. It could help small business people sell things in U.S. dollars, um, and not have the U.S. dollars clawed back by the government because they desperately need it to, um, it can, you know, so it can help keep the economy going what a lot of the infrastructure around it is out there. So I would say that might be a, a future bill that really adds value and adds people. So that would be something that I would tend to look towards. Other than that, they'll, they'll just do what they do. And uh, if the main thing is take a look at the 28 questions in the DeFi safety uh, point and sit back and say, am I doing that? Am I doing that? Am I doing that? If you check off all of me, have a plan for all of them as you develop, you're going to do fine. All right, well, that, that's a great place to end off on. Um, definitely check out that checklist for, for DeFi safety. Uh, thanks again, Rex, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you making time. My pleasure, Sean. Uh, that's, it's, it's been fun. Thank you much.